Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 227. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing two films from the late 50s and the early 1960s. The first one is at a crossroads between film noir and the French New Wave and it is Louis Malle's Elevated to the Gallows starring the immortal and wonderful Jean Moreau. Then we go to 1964 for a Eurospy movie, an English Eurospy movie, Hot Enough for June, starring Dirk Bogart and Sylvia Kashina, which is a lot of fun and very much in a different tone than Elevated to the Gallows. So sit back, I will get the contact details out of the way, and the podcast will commence. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by mp3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. And so we are. It's been quite hot here. Uh, It's humid today, but not particularly hot. But we did get up to around 42 degrees centigrade. Americans can figure out what that is. It's about 105, 106 years old school. And, yeah, so it's been warm. We had didn't do much for the two days that it was at those levels of temperature. It's one of those things where everybody gets very sedentary, hits the shade. The best place to probably be is in a cinema. Uh, didn't do that. I instead watched the movies for this podcast while the weather was that shitty. So, um, how are you? It's January, uh, it's mid-January in fact, it's heading towards the end of January. And here in Australia we've got a bit of a kerfuffle about Australia Day because Australia Day is currently celebrated on the 26th of January each year when the first fleet arrived in Sydney Harbour and the colonisation of Australia and the disenfranchisement of the Indigenous peoples began. And there are a number of people, myself included, who think that it's probably not the best day to have a day of national celebration because for a portion of our citizenry, it is definitely not a day for celebrating. Now, Australia Day has been all over the place. It was at the end of June at one stage, but um, there are a whole bunch of conservative people who are getting up on their high horses because they all play polo and saying, no, we can't change Australia Day because it's traditionally like that. It's only been like that for the last 30, 40 years. So there's a big mess about Australia Day. Nobody's going to reject the public holiday that we get, of course, but we kind of all want to move it to some other time of the year out of respect and recognition for the Indigenous peoples of this land. So that's going on at the moment. There's not much else going on because all the politicians are on holidays at least until the end of January, early February. So we're only getting little bits of stuff. We're just kind of sitting back, getting the popcorn and watching what's happening in America as far as politics is concerned. And about half the country is currently on vacation because January traditionally is when 
people who can get that time off take the time off. So I can't even go to on one of my epic country drives because the roads are going to be full of idiots who don't normally drive very long distances. And so it's um, a bit risky. So there's all that happening. Um, yeah, there are a couple of movies coming up that I want to look at. We're going to go see The Shape of Water soon. And the buzz for Black Panther, the next part of that enormous mosaic that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is incredible. It's got the biggest pre-sales of any movie in history. And particularly for people of colour in America, they are really hanging on this movie. If that if it gets totally fucked up and it's not very good at all, then there are going to be a lot of disappointed people, myself included. But it is generating a buzz, and it's one of those movies that's going to be important for the same reason, probably, that Luke Cage was important when it came on Netflix, that iconography of having a black person who can't be touched by the white power structures is a very important one for a number of disenfranchised people around the world. Plus, it's going to be a kick-ass action film, so you've got all that going there. So, um, yeah, there are things upcoming that I'm really looking forward to, and that's always a nice place for your head to be. I'm still adjusting to the kind of retirement thing, and um, I've got some dental work I'm getting done this week and ongoing, which is going to make things quite interesting if in the future. I sound somewhat slurred or mushy-mouthed when I'm doing the podcast. The reason is that I'm getting uh, the choppers done. So I'll let you know up front when it's going to happen so that if the dulcetness of my voice, such as it is, diminishes at all, it's going to be because of that, hopefully. So um, yeah, so what have I been watching? Um, just a lot of shit on YouTube, of course, as usual. I did watch a movie on Netflix, which isn't too bad, a little horror film with Dolph Lundgren, and Dolph Lundgren's a lot of fun, called Don't Kill It, where he plays a bounty hunter for demons. And the demons have got a really interesting MO in this one, because if you kill the demon, or kill the person possessed by the demon, then the demon possesses you. So the whole idea is to do non-lethal weaponry with the demons, so that you can trap them and... Um, find another way to get rid of them but you don't kill them because the moment you do you become possessed so it's passed on like a venereal disease and it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and Dolph has a bit of fun with it it's not a big budget movie it's not a um, fantastically good movie but it is quite entertaining and so if you get a chance to see Don't Kill It on Netflix go for it because it is a bit of fun uh, I picked up for like six bucks with the 20% discount, six dollars, an old western from the 1950s, a uh, movie called Drums Across the River, starring Audie Murphy and uh, people like Walter Brennan playing his, the character's father, Lyle Bettiger, a whole bunch of character actors turn up in this one. Now, Audie Murphy was a pretty shit actor, and this apparently is one of these best westerns, so I'm probably not going to go visiting many more of them. One of the few good things about it is it has Jay Silverhills in it, the guy who played Tonto in The Lone Ranger for a long time, turning up as uh, one of the people across the river when it says drums across the river. So he's playing, um, obviously, an Indigenous American. And they do a pretty good job on making them a complex and, and robust kind of culture. They don't do the bit where people shoot them and there's no consequences at all. It was on that arc. 
between things like Cheyenne Autumn and now when you know the way that um, Native Americans are portrayed in movies started getting more sophisticated and more even-handed still early stages with drums across the river but it's a very much a B western it was okay it was time filling but it wasn't all that great uh, I did see a movie that was kind of cool a sequel to quite an ordinary science fiction movie called Skyline and it's beyond Skyline which has um, some great action scenes. It's got Frank Grillo playing the protagonist in it. You've got these giant aliens coming down from the sky in a spaceship and kidnapping people, and we don't know why, and sucking them up into the sky. And that happens to pretty much every character in the movie, um, at the start of the film anyway. And uh, the government nukes the city and the people are hiding in the sewers and all that kind of thing. And then Frank Grillo and with the, some unusual assistance, ends up crashing the spaceship in the Golden Triangle in um, Thailand and meets up with Iko Iwes, uh character. Now, Iko Iwes, in case you don't know him, is the guy who was in The Braid, a kick-ass Indonesian martial artist. I've actually got another one of his movies called Headshot that I want to watch soon. I picked that up quite cheaply the other day. And Beyond Skyline is great. It's a good action film. You've got... Um, humans fighting aliens armed with, you know, the humans have got machetes and the aliens have got enormous clawed arms and the aliens are about twice as tall as the people. And it's just a lot of fun and a kick-ass action science fiction movie. Frank Grillo carries the movie well as the protagonist, so that works nicely. And it was surprisingly good. So uh, I really enjoyed Beyond Skyline. A couple of other things I saw. Uh, Another science fiction movie which wasn't as good was Geostorm with Gerard Butler. It's about there being a whole bunch of satellites up in orbit that are controlling the weather because climate change. And somebody grabs hold of them and starts creating enormous tidal waves and uh, roasting some places and putting ice all over um, parts of Afghanistan and doing all sorts of other nasty things. Somebody wants to take over the world, so they do it by taking over the weather control mechanism. Um, some of it takes place on a very much expanded international space station some of the actions on earth there are lightning strikes all over um, Miami Florida and all sorts of other bits and pieces it's very much kind of that disaster natural disaster porn natural disaster movie kind of thing Um, you know what's going to happen just before it happens everywhere along this movie you know they've got a guy who's got all the information that's necessary to find out what's going on and he's about to cross the street and meet the other people and you know somebody's going to push him into traffic and sure enough someone pushes him into traffic so you've got that going for it the beats of the movie are very obvious and i like being surprised a little bit even by a movie like this you want little bits and pieces of business that kind of hit you from an unexpected direction and that just doesn't happen with geostorm uh the science in it of course is totally fucked and stupid but there are a couple of moments that work in it, and so it wasn't entirely a waste of time. Uh, the other movie I saw, which I did enjoy, and I know that um, Travis Johnson, my movie reviewing comrade from Film Inc., disagrees with me strongly on this one, and it's a movie called Brigsby Bear, which has got a really unusual premise. I'm not going to spoil it by saying anything about it, except for the fact that it's got Mark Hamill in it, playing a much more interesting role than Luke Skywalker. 
and it's kind of a feel-good movie in some ways, but it doesn't go in expected directions, and it's kind of cool. It's very much a Sundancey kind of movie, but I enjoyed it, and I thought that the story and and the premise was really a lot of fun. It's kind of not quite a comedy. It's a coming-of-age film in a sense, and really um, I, I kind of enjoyed it. So uh, what else has been happening around? There's going to be a Black Widow movie in 2020. That's just been announced, so that's kind of cool. And, of course, there's also um, the Captain Marvel movie with Brie Larson going to be coming out as well. So maybe Hollywood is starting to change. I mean, I hope so. I want to see more movies with kick-ass female protagonists, and also ordinary female protagonists, for that matter. Um, Getting rid of the sexism in cinema and in the industry behind cinema is going to take us in some fun directions. And having much more inclusive casting is going to totally revolutionise Hollywood. At least I hope it is. And you've got to stay optimistic with these things. You've got to give um, them a chance to do that. And I think they may well do so because ultimately it's going to cost them money if they don't. Social media has a big fist in 2018. And... It isn't scared to flail it around when something goes wrong. And so based on that very new economic reality, I think studios are going to change and for the better. And there are going to be a lot more revelations about the behaviour of certain people and, and the list keeps getting longer and longer. And that then is going to change the faces that we see on our screens and also the people who are writing and telling us the stories we see on the screens. So, yeah, 21st century is taking some interesting twists in some ways. And I think that the seed from which all of this has grown is probably Trump. The fact that, um, for however it was done, a reality TV person ended up running the United States has been a reality check for the planet in a sense and we really don't want this to happen again so we'll see how things go baby steps we'll just you know walk away from the apocalypse one step at a time and just see how things go so anyway i'm going to take a break now i want to get back i'm going to do these in reverse order for the simple reason that i want to end with elevated to the gallows and i'm going to talk about a nice cute little euro spy movie called hot enough for june which is also known by the abysmal name Agent 8 and 3 quarters, because it's not like 007, starring Dirk Bogart and Silver Koshina. Now, just be aware this trailer is very much of its time. It was all rather curious. What are you prepared to pay while I'm waiting for these openings? Well, I suppose you'll pull in about 2,000 a year. 40, 40, 40 quid a week. In fact... It was very, very curious. Well, what do we make of him? Forty pounds a week, plus expenses, of course. A free trip to Eastern Europe and accommodation in a luxury hotel. Why? Hot enough for June. It was hot enough for anybody and getting warmer all the time. I'm Vlasta Simonova, your driver and guide. I'm to be totally at your service. How nice, thank you very much. To coin a phrase, he never had it so good. There had to be a catch in it. 
and there was. Hot enough for June, romance with a beautiful girl, the gaiety and glamour of a sophisticated city, and all at someone else's expense. And what was it going to cost him? <laughs> well, 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 how'd you get stuck in a job like this? It's a cover, you idiot. Here, give me the book. What do you mean, cover? What the hell do you think I mean? Here, now take this and guard it with your life. I want to know what you meant. Oh, do stop playing the fool, man. I am a spy, same as you are. Spy? I'm nothing. I, I'm not a spy. I have nothing to do with being a spy. Good evening. I have some questions to ask you. I represent the state security police. By the way, have you come across a fellow called Whistler? Whistler? No, I don't think so. No, one of yours. No, one of yours. I thought you might know him. Someone told me he had a bit of an accident. Oh, I am sorry. Anything serious? <laughs> <laughs> Cold War is about to end. Hot Enough for June is a 1964 British spy comedy directed by Ralph Thomas and featuring Dirk Bogard, Silver Kashina, Robert Morley and Leo McKern. It's based on a 1960 novel The Night of Wenceslas by Lionel Davidson. And the film was cut by 20 minutes and retitled Agent 8 and 3 quarters for the US release. Uh, I'm just reading this bit from Wikipedia. Part of a trend in spy films in the wake of the success of the James Bond series, its art director was Sid Kane, who had the same job on the first two Bond films. Silva Kashina herself had been considered for the role of Tatiana Romanova in From Russia with Love. So this one is kind of the comic reaction to the enormous success of James Bond movies and the phenomenon called Bond mania. And it's a lot of fun. In fact, right at the start, we get one of the spies, a guy called Roger Allsop, played by John LeMessurier, who turns over some belongings at the desk of a bureaucratic office somewhere in London, um, a whole bunch of spy gadgets and things like that. The gadgets and things are put in a drawer marked 007 with a little file card in the front saying 007 and then it's flipped over to say deceased. So right at the start of this film, the movie posits the fact that James Bond has just been killed, which is kind of cute and a little bit audacious, but they went there anyway. Right out of the gates, I've got to say that Dirk Bogart is about 20 years too old for the role. Nonetheless, he does a marvellous job of it. He plays a character called Nicholas Whistler, who's an unemployed British writer who, because of his family background, happens to speak Czech. He's at the unemployment exchange to be interviewed uh, as a trainee executive for a glass company. And the man ostensibly running the glass company, a guy called Cunliffe, played by Robert Morley, at his campus, finds out that Whistler can speak Czech and offers him a job with an exorbitant salary plus expenses, and sends him off to Czechoslovakia to look at a glass factory, ostensibly. There's a MacGuffin in there with him 
uh, bringing back some information from uh, Czechoslovakia. But that doesn't really matter because the movie isn't about the MacGuffin and we never actually find out what it is, nor do any of the characters in the movie Cunliffe included. In Prague, Whistler is given a drive of luster, played by Silver Kashina, to take him around and show him around to the glass factory in her little car. And of course, her being Silver Kashina is tremendously attractive. And there's an instant chemistry, of course, between Whistler and Vluster. Meanwhile, Cunliffe's opposite number, Simonova, played by Leah McKern, very amusingly, is trying to find out who the spy who's come to Prague is and to catch him in the act. So Whistler doesn't even know he's a spy first. He just thinks he's a businessman going to a glass factory in Prague to take a look at some unbreakable glass being made there by the man who runs the factory, a character called Galushka, played by Eric Polman. Eric Polman was a rotund English actor, best known probably, and at around the same time he made this movie, for being the voice of Blofeld in From Russia with Love and Thunderball. So when you, you know, you never see Blofeld in those films, but you see the guy with the cat, that deep, slightly foreign accented voice is actually Eric Polman. Uh, he did a number of movies both in the UK and around the world. Uh, he, he was in Hollywood for a little while. He was in the original and best Moulin Rouge, the one that John Huston did in 1952. Magambo, Lust for Life, 55 Days of Peking, uh, The Return of the Pink Panther, Carry On Spying. Uh, he just, just had a long career, and I like Eric Pullman. He only turns up very briefly, but he does a nice little bit of comedy in this film, which goes to show that even though he did tend to play slightly dramatic heavies, he could still carry a light comedy scene very, very effectively. There are a whole bunch of cool actors in this film. Uh, we see Derek Nimmo in there as one of uh, Whistler's friends at the start of the film. And we also see Noel Harrison as Johnny, one, another one of his friends. Noel Harrison, best known for two things, playing the sidekick in The Girl From Uncle, and for singing Windmills of Your Mind, uh, and very successfully, son of Rex Harrison, of course. So we've got those guys in there. We've got uh, Richard Vernon playing Roddinghead. Uh, Richard Vernon played English bureaucrats forever in movies. We've got John Standing, who's the British agent you hear in the trailer there. John Standing was in a fantastic, very fairly low-budget movie, a horror film called The Psychopath from the mid-1960s, which I am going to have to talk about on a podcast at some stage because it's got a really fucking creepy ending to it. And John Standing is very good in it, so we've got him there. Um, we've also got, as a, one, a waiter in the hotel in which Whistler is staying, somebody that the sight of whom would make Doctor Who fans wet themselves, and that's Roger Delgado, the first person to play the master in Doctor Who and he was a close friend of John Pertwee's and even though they both played kind of posh roles and particularly Delgado um, often played uh, Eastern European and European characters he was actually a Cockney nonetheless in this one he has a few good moments uh, this movie is just replete with jobbing English actors who come in do something really well and then fuck off again. 
and it's a lot of fun to watch Roger Delgado in there amongst other people. Uh, we And then, of course, we've got Leah McKern. And hi to Carrie, if you listen to this podcast. Carrie McKern, my friend in Sydney, is Leah McKern's niece. And we had a really nice uh, coffee meetup while I was in Sydney last. Um, Leah does a fantastic job in this one. He's got his tongue in his cheek. He had that great skill of, in the same film, with the same character, playing incredibly dangerous and menacing and also playing it light and comedic. And there's some, there are some great scenes in this film of just Roger Morley and Leah McKern playing off each other in a very friendly way, even though they're on either sides of the Iron Curtain. These two characters get on quite well. They realise it's all a bullshit game, and they play things accordingly. And that's quite um, <laughs> delicious to see. In fact, they're in the very last scene of the movie which is is great, and uh, Leo and Robert Morley have all the best lines in the film. And, of course, he, why wouldn't he be brilliant? He's an Australian. So, yeah, and Silver Cashina, beautiful woman. Uh, she, we do get to see her in a bikini and, and slightly less. Got to remember, this is 1964, though. Uh, she didn't get a, a fantastic career in movies. She was in one of the two Bulldog Drummond movies that Ralph Thomas did, with Richard Johnson. Um, deadly, was she in Deadlier Than The Male? Or some girls do. I think she might have been Deadlier Than The Male. Ralph Thomas made about four or five Eurospy movies in the 1960s while he was working with Betty Box and um, the, their production company. So he definitely knew what he was doing and he cast Silver Cashina in those roles. Uh, she went on to have a career for a while but as she aged um the kind of starlet beautiful woman roles that uh she she was never not a beautiful woman but she kind of aged out of those roles and didn't really get the opportunities after that which is a great shame because i think she had a really nice light touch and you know could carry um better roles as time went on were the opportunities made available to her but in this one, her first English language film, she is very good and very attractive as well. She'd previously done a number of films, mostly um, Italian peplum movies, gladiator films, those kind of things. But in this one, she's um, she is yeah, decorative. Let's just say decorative. And Dirk Bogart, even though he was very much a closeted gay man, does play the romantically with great aplomb and his Nicholas Whistler is an interesting character because even though he's untrained he is quick-witted and smart and so you see him using lots of little bits of tradecraft to escape from the secret police and to um, disguise himself in various ways while trying to get to the British embassy and that's kind of fun too because the, the, the there's a lot of imagination in the ways that Whistler goes about hiding in plain sight from these people. And that's one of the great most enjoyable things about this film is the fact that you don't quite know what Bert, Dirk Bogart's character is going to do next, how he's going to get out of certain situations. And although we know, of course, it's going to have a happy ending because it's that sort of movie, Ralph Thomas does build up the suspense very well. The scenes that were supposed to be filmed in Czechoslovakia were actually filmed in Padua in Italy. So it's very much got 
uh, continental feel to it. Uh, the music I really like in this film. It's got a musical score which feels a little bit like an old Xavier Cougar score, but it's not. It's by uh, an Italian composer called Angelo Lavanino, and I think it works kind of well. One of the great things about Euro spy movies in particular is they tended to have really cool soundtracks. In fact, sometimes the soundtrack was much better than the movie itself. There are a great number of Eurospy soundtracks that I'm really, really fond of. And in fact, even people like Ennio Morricone did Eurospy soundtracks. Hot Enough for June is out on Blu-ray, by the way. There is an English pressing of the Blu-ray by Network put out, and that's the one that I picked up. And the transfer is really good. Uh, There aren't too many extras on it, but still, I I like this one a lot as a spy movie. I like it as a Eurospy movie, and I also like it as a Dirk Bogard movie. The really interesting thing about this film for me is that Bogard, who wasn't going to originally do the film, but found out that he had some taxes to pay and he was a little bit skint, and so he took the job when it was offered to him by Ralph Thomas. He had just come off doing Joseph Losey's The Servant, which is a dead serious, tremendously kind of dramatic role. He went from that to doing this film. Now, Bogart wasn't happy particularly doing this kind of movie. He'd done a whole bunch of kind of light comedies. The Doctor films he did were comedic. He did them for 10 years almost. And he really didn't want to continue being the matinee idol kind of character. He was in his 40s by this stage and was kind of like Silver Cashina later did. He aged himself out of the roles. And they just didn't suit him anymore, apart from the fact that he was a a closeted gentleman at the time and only even kind of peeked out of the closet to do Victim a couple of years after this film. Then went on to a kind of dual stream career, playing very serious roles in movies like The Night Porter, and Death in Venice, but also becoming a a bit of an essayist and a writer. He wrote a couple of novels and he wrote some memoirs that are very good as well. A Postillion Hit by Lightning is great. Uh, His writing style was kind of beautifully lyrical. And if you can find any of Dirk Bogard's books, they really are worth checking out. But just to finalise Hot Enough for June, he did a couple of other spy movies. He did a thing called Sebastian a couple of years later with Susanna York but in general his career was going in another direction with the more serious roles and these ones in a sense were him cashing a check but nonetheless he did in you know he did a fantastic job of the film supporting cast is first class and even though it's not like a you know roll around on the floor laughing comedy it is amusingly droll it is a bit of fun and I like all the little bits of spy business in it as well. And just seeing what will happen next and seeing how he get, escapes from a hotel room uh, when the secret police break in and all those other bits and pieces of business are a lot of fun. And although this one was never going to win awards, it is amusing to watch and, and it never forgets the fact that it is an entertainment. And Ralph Thomas, the director himself, said he made the film because he thought the script was quite funny and he loved working with Doak Bogart. And he said it was still during that period when Bogart was doing those sort of roles very well. It could have gone another way, that film, as well. They were approaching Tom Courtney to play the role. And, in fact, he agreed to. 
until Dirk Bogard changed his mind when he found out he needed the money. Critically, the movie wasn't a success, and people just said most of the fun stuff is Robert Morley in the film, and you can't really necessarily argue about that, but there are other, other bits of business in there that are a lot of fun. I like England in the 1960s as we see it in films, because in my mind, England in the 1960s is just a country full of character actors and a few stars, but mostly character actors who are incredibly good at what they do and incredibly interesting to watch when they actually do it. So I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back, I'm going to be doing a much more serious film and no less entertaining and no less worthwhile than Hot Enough for June, and that is Louis Malle's Elevator to the Gallows, starring the wonderful Jean Moreau. But, of course, this being a French film, I wasn't able to get a trailer for it. So what I did was this, and it's a little bit different for the way I usually approach these things in the podcast. What I found was an English version of a French song by Gilbert Bacot, sung by Petula Clark, which has the feel of Elevated to the Gallows about it. It's a little bit of abstract to do that. But I'm going to play the song now, and then I'm going to talk about the movie. So this one's kind of to get you in the mood for Elevated to the Gallows. And it is Petula Clark singing a song called All the Live Long Day, which is the English language version of Gilbert Bacot's Crook Me to Flay, which is um, a very sad song. But it's very much in the style of Elevator to the Gallows. There's a melancholy lullum down my spinal column when you go away. There's a pendulum ding-donging Hours of unbelonging When you go away Oh, how the hours stretch out While I wait about For the end of day And the seconds are so drear Slipping out of gear When you go away Muddled in a muffler All alone I stray And the sunniest of weathers Bright as peacock's feathers Cannot make me gay That lark above the tree Merely sounds to me Like a croaking jay he flips and flaps the skies, groans and gruntifies like a bird of prey. Oh, la la, darling, how I want you. Oh, la la, through the 
than delighting, super dynamiting. You are by my side. You are whispering and whirring, passioning and purring, glad and gleamy eyed. All the stars go bang and clang, bells go tang a lang, sounding the alarms. And you give a cry and a sigh, like a lullaby. Lying in my arms, ooh la la, darling, how I love you, oh la la, through the live long day. Elevator to the Gallows is a 1958 French crime movie directed by Louis Malle. The original French title is Ascenseur pour le Chauffeur, meaning, of course, Elevator to the Gallows. But weirdly, in England it was called Lift to the Scaffold. But if we're picking our favourite translation, I'm going to go with Elevator to the Gallows. Uh, it's a fantastic film, black and white, of course, because the French didn't make many colour films in those days. And there's... A lot of cool things about this film, and one of the coolest of cool things is the music for the movie is performed and written by Miles Davis, so it doesn't get any cooler than that. Good friend of the podcast, Morris, will be grinning now because of the Miles Davis thing. The story is very film noir but it's also French New Wave, so it's at a very interesting crossroads between those two genres, and it works tremendously well. In both of them, the movie stars Maurice Ronet as Julien Tavernier, who is a businessman who works for a wealthy um, industrialist called Simon Carala. Uh, with Simon's wife, Florence, played by Jean Moreau, Julien decides that he is going to kill Florence's husband, Simon, and make it look like an accident. He works in the same modern office building as Simon does and has a plan to get a grapnel, go up to the next floor where Corala's office is, and he arranges to shoot him while making it look like suicide. Of course, this is before DNA testing and all those sort of things and a lot of the other technologies that would have nailed these people straight away. But he successfully kills Simon and then goes down to his nice little uh, sports car and he's about to drive away and meet Florence and, and, you know, fool the police into thinking that Simon killed himself. While he's at his car and the engine's running, he's parked outside the florist. He looks up and sees that he's left the grapnel there. So he goes back into the building, leaving his car engine on because he thinks he's only going to be a minute. And goes back into the building, goes up to get the grapnel. And on the way down, the building's closing down for the weekend and all the power is cut. So he's trapped in the elevator in between floors and can't get out. That's problem number one. Problem number two is... A small-time crook called Louis, whose girlfriend is the flower shop assistant, Veronique, 
played by Georges Pujuli and um, Veronique is played by Yuri Burton. Louis steals the car and drives away in it. They put the hood up on the convertible and drive through Paris on a joyride. Uh, Veronique's a little bit reluctant to do so, but Louis convinces her. And then they drive down the streets. And as they're driving down the streets in this very distinctive American sports car, Florence sees the car go past and sees Veronique in it, but doesn't quite see the driver. So she thinks that Julian is driving away from the city with this beautiful girl in his car, where it's actually a car that's been stolen. So Florence then thinks that her lover has betrayed her where he's actually trapped in an elevator in the building. So that's the second part of this very interesting um, crime drama. And we follow um, Florence, Florence through the night as she tries to find out where he's gone with the car. They, she goes to all of the cafes where they're both known and spends the night basically wandering the streets looking for her lover who's trapped in an office building. And Jean Moreau is incredibly poignant. Even though she's a conspirator to a murder, uh, she essays the character in such a way that we're really sympathetic to Florence. We see her do a voiceover at the start. We don't quite understand the context of it until the end of the film. But she's wandering the streets. Uh, She meets various people. She's distraught and angry and confused because they're deeply, deeply in love. And suddenly he's nicked off in the sports car with a beautiful girl and she doesn't understand why. It doesn't occur to her there could be other reasons for it. All she knows is she's got to find Julian and talk to him and find out what's actually going on. Meanwhile, Louis and Veronique, the people who have stolen the car, take it out in the country and go to a very modern little motel for the night. There they meet a German uh, couple who are slightly older. Louis, who's not necessarily very bright, talks with the German couple, the the bankers, they're called. And, you know, they're they're kind of friendly in that. And Louis bullshits about having been in Indochina during the French occupation of Indochina and about what it's like to be a soldier in the war. But uh, Benken knows this because he was a German soldier during World War II. So... He plays along with it. They go and have drinks with them and, and have a chat and, you know, take some photos with a camera that um, Louis has found in the pocket of the coat that is in the car at the time. And right at the end of it, um, just as Louis is trying to steal the German's car, the German guy gets the drop on him and holds what appears to be a gun on him and says that he knew he was never a soldier and that he was bullshitting all the time. Their car's quite nice too. It's a Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Gullwing. So it's a very slick-looking bit of kit. But what Banker doesn't know is that Louis has Julien's gun from his glove compartment in the car and shoots him with it. And we find out that what Banker, what the first looks like a gun, is actually an aluminium cigar tube that he was using to fool the kid to stop him stealing his car. So they're on the run now, and they've booked into the hotel under the name of Mr. and Mrs. Julien Tavernier. So they go back to Paris, have a suicide pact, and take some pills and pass out. I'm not going to take it any further than that on the plot of this movie, because lots of things kind of circle around. Various characters meet each other, 
And there's a really interesting and tragic and very touching resolution to the film, which worked for me surprisingly well. And also, one of the cool things about the film, which made it... There are so many cool things about the film. But one of them is that one of the police detectives is played by Lino Ventura, who had a history of playing police detectives. He was in The Sicilian Clan, for instance, which I've mentioned on a previous podcast. And um, he was actually uh, Italian. He was born in Palma, in fact, in 1919. He died in 1987. But he was in so many cool movies. He was in Touche Pas or Grisby in 1953 with Jean Gabon and Jean Moreau. So he'd worked with her before. Uh, the Sicilian Clan, a whole bunch of different films as well. And Army of Shadows. He was in Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows with Simone Signore. Um, and a whole bunch of other films. Fantastic tough guy actor. And this is a really good tough guy cop role for him which I really enjoyed. I didn't actually notice when I was reading the front of the DVD box that Lino Ventura was in it. So when he popped up, it was a bit of a surprise for me. And I went, oh, cool, Lino Ventura, this is a class film. I knew that anyway. And it worked tremendously well. So the look of the film is very much it, French New Wave. It's got that black and white set in Paris, driving along the streets, public life of Paris, uh, some of the backgrounds, of course, of it look very documentary because it was all filmed on location. And we see little bits of technology that we don't have now. We see the way office machinery works in the office. We see a really cool pencil sharpener that one of the women is using in the office. We see the way that um, film is developed when you're away in a motel. There's a little kind of vending machine where you pop the film in there, uh, pay your money, and... Uh, get a little receipt which you then take to the office and get the film the next day so all those little bits of business are there which are really interesting we um we see a number of cafes in paris which is kind of cool because there are a few places in the world cooler than parisian cafes but the heart of the film comes down to jean moreau playing florence and you know the love that she has for um julien which it's kind of tragically romantic and we find out at the end of the film exactly how powerful that love is in a non-verbal way in a really interesting non-verbal way which kind of works tremendously well and i'm amazed at how well thought out that particular part of the film is so it's got an incredibly complex plot it runs 88 minutes so it's not a long film but there's not a wasted second in this movie it really does have the intensity that we want there's a lot of suspense scenes there's a scene where julian's trying to escape from the elevator which gets him way into uh, diehard territory and you've got to think that um John McTiernan and the people making Die Hard were not unfamiliar with this film because there's some elevator business in this movie that really does presage a whole bunch of those kind of films and of course owes a little bit to Hitchcock as well so it's got it's a kind of blending in a cool way it's got the cool jazz of Miles Davis it's got the French New Wave sensibility and the look of a French New Wave film it's also got 
the tragic circumstances and the way fate steps in to fuck people up that film noir is famous for. There isn't particularly a femme fatale in there, but there are lovers who decide to kill the wife's husband. There are small-time crooks who steal cars and uh, do stupid things. There are murders, two murders in there. And they're a tough guy cop, so it's definitely film noir, um, which, of course, the French Cahiers de Cinema people thought up around the time this movie was being made. And yet it works well as a character piece as well, mostly because of Jean Moreau. Louis Mal actually um, got her for the film because he saw her on stage doing a French-language version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And I can't help but think that the only character that Jean Moreau could possibly have played in that particular production was Maggie the Cat. So imagine going to France in the 1950s and seeing Jean Moreau in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. That would have been incredibly cool. Even though I wouldn't have picked up most of the dialogue, it would have been incredibly cool to see that. Uh, I'm really going to have to look into more of Louis Mal cinema. I mean, I know... Some of his later works, things like um, My Dinner with Andre and Atlantic City, of course, and Pretty Baby. So the English language stuff I know fairly well. But I really should um, dip into his earlier films because there's um, there's some cool stuff there. He, we worked with Robert Bresson on A Man Escaped in 1956. I'm going to have to check that one out. I'm going to have to see The Lovers. I'm going to have to see a whole bunch of other films and that of course is going to lead me lead me down the garden path to taking a look at more Chabrol, Godard, Truffaut, Romare and all those other guys from that particular part of the world and that particular um, subculture at the time which created of course the French Nouvelle Vague. That's one of the problems with being like an old movie buff. You watch one movie which leads you to another movie which leads you to another movie and suddenly you've seen 10 different films in a particular genre. And then you go, okay, well, it's time for a break. What else is out there? So you, you kind of, you're kind of like a rabbit that goes all the way down the row of carrots and then gets sick of carrots and goes over to where the cabbages are and tries the cabbages. So it's an endless loop of just finding things that you weren't aware of. And you can never be aware of every film. Uh, and just following that path all the way through till you're satisfied with it. And you never quite all get entirely satisfied but you end up watching a whole bunch of films. I mean, Elevated to the Gallows pinged my radar a little bit. I was kind of aware of the title, but I didn't know much about it. But then I was looking through eBay, had a bit of money in the um, PayPal account, and I picked it up quite cheaply. This one's, a, um, I think it may be a Korean pressing of Elevated to the Gallows with English subtitles. And that's um, a movie that's on my list of best first watches for the year already because I enjoyed it a lot. I'm going to re-watch it at some stage because, yeah, one of the weird things about movies starring Jean Moreau is that if you're at all that way inclined, you fall a little bit in love with Jean Moreau every time you see one of her films. There's a magic to her as an actor which really does come through the screen in a pretty much unique way. I've talked about movies with her in before. I did The Bride War Black, where she was just a little bit too old for the role, but 
still there was a great adaptation of a corner of Woolrich story and she was terrific in that as well but uh Elevated to Gallows has a bunch of different things, of course. It's got good acting, it's got fantastic score, it's got suspense, it's got romance, it's got um, crime and punishment. It's pretty much the full package there. And I think it's a movie that if somebody put it on in an encore cinema, like the Astor here in Melbourne, I think it would get an audience. I think it would find a new audience as well because it is just a perfect combination of new wave and film noir and it's a movie i'm going to cherish for that reason it's um i can't think of a bad thing to say about it it really does work it's one of those movies that shows you that if you have the right script and the right director and the right actors you don't need an enormous budget to tell a really cool story which this movie indeed does so that's about it for this time around. I'm, I've got this crazy urge now to go out and watch some French films for some odd reason. And I'm kind of glad I picked that Petula Clark song to start things off with there because it very much does have the mood of the movie. Not perhaps as much as the Miles Davis score, which I wasn't able to find, but it's a kind of melancholy film noir, new wave movie combination which i've said about four times now and i can't stop saying so it's probably time for me to finish the podcast by the way i've got a poll up on the podcast at the patreon.com slash paleo cinema which anybody can add to and i'm just kind of asking what people want to see in future episodes of the podcast and getting a little bit of uh, feedback by that means i may well put one up on facebook as well so i can kind of find out what people want to see so um that's it this time around so i just had two teeth fillings today so i'm going to go and uh drown my sorrows in a glass of scotch so take care of yourselves watch some good movies watch some bad movies if you haven't seen it check out elevator to the gallows because you're not going to regret it and in the meantime look after yourselves uh yeah if you're up in the northern hemisphere uh stay warm if you're down here definitely stay cool because we're getting some more heat waves coming through in the next few days and things are going to get a bit dire from that direction um and i'll be back next week with a martian drive-in podcast we'll be back in two weeks with another paleo cinema podcast and again thank you to the patreon subscribers and here of course is the credits to the podcast he said as a helicopter flies overhead i don't know whether you can hear it in the background pretty sure they're not coming after me can't be too certain but i'm fairly sure and of course here are the credits in the style of movie credits to recognize and support the patreon subscribers who support the podcast take care and i'll catch you guys later and here are the credits thank you to tom the focus puller sarah the special effects technician ian the caterer Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris our Music Director, Jan our Dialect Coach, Armin our Key Grip, Matt our Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris the Camera Operator, Christopher the Gaffer, Miss Jane the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy our Foley Artist, Alyssa, our Location Scout. 
Mark, our set and unit director. Paul, our special effects makeup, special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our monster effects guy. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H, the set photographer. Mark D, extra. David L, the extra. Richard C, our transportation co-captain. Carrie L, our Tasmanian consultant. And Carrie C, our accountant. We also have Sally, our continuity girl. And of course, the other Sally, who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. 